Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for Thursday, October the 8th. Coming up, we'll talk about the big federal-provincial announcement regarding electric vehicle production in Ontario. Also, the Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, joins us. He's calling for a modified Stage 2 in COVID-19 hotspots. And also, the Ontario Health Coalition calling this a day of action regarding long-term care homes and personal support workers. All of that coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur Podcast. Okay, just before we get started, uh, do I have anything in my head? Do I have something in my head? And if I had, if I had something in my head, Mary, would you tell me that I had something in my head? I would a hundred percent. I wouldn't let an insect sit on the top of your head without telling you. I would interrupt a, a debate. I would, you know, interrupt a national televised event to let you know you have an insect on your hair. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe you know what? Here's the thing. I watched the first hour of the debate, the vice presidential debate last night. And then I said, you know what? I've had enough. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And I missed the most exciting part, which I guess was near the end where this fly lands on Vice President Pence's uh, head. And for me, the first question is, if you're Kamala Harris, I know you're like in a cage match to the death with this guy. (laughs) But isn't there part of you that just wants to say, um... A little something right here. Okay, got something going on right here. It would be so distracting. You know, I think of a Mike Myers movie and the mole, right? How could you not say, I'm going to fly in the face of these things? And uh, I'm, I'm really buzzing about some of the things you just said. I mean, I don't know how she kept her focus. I guess Pence had a lot of hairspray on and didn't feel it. Um, or maybe the fly was, you know, from the movie The Fly, trying to say something, you know, famous line from the movie The Fly, help me, help yeah. me be human. <laughs> maybe that was what was going on. I have no idea how Kamala Harris remained straight face through that whole thing. It was unbelievable, because, yeah, I would have just started cracking up. I would have been like, Vice President, I know you're trying to make, like, a really important point right now, but uh, you got a fly in your head. you got a fly. So on your head. You know, the other thing that occurred to me is afterwards, I'm sure Pence, he comes off the stage, right? Goes backstage and he's just like strutting, feeling real good, feeling really proud. Like, man, I was out there and I killed it. Yeah, yeah. I was so good uh, tonight. And then how would you like Mary to be part of the vice president's team and be the person that has to tell him? <laughs> And tell him that maybe he needs a fly swatter that, um, that Biden is selling and has sold out online to, you know, swat flies like that. So. I would not, for the life of me, want to have that job to tell the vice president he'd be there like, oh, yeah, I did such a great job tonight. Boy, I made this point and I did this. And I did. Sir, you had a fly in your head. Mm-hmm. I, I what? You had a fly in your head. I, I, what? What? <laughs> Stole the show. <laughs> I would love to have seen Pence's reaction backstage after he saw the videotape and saw what happened and went down. I'm sure he just went like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but what, you think somebody would have come on the stage and like hit him in the head or <laughs> whispered in his ear or, you know, brought out the fly swatter to try and just, I mean, that, that would be so much worse. It's like, Fly's going to go away. It's going to go away, right? But maybe it's stuck. Maybe it's stuck to his hairspray. And he's like, I want to get out of here, but I can't. Oh, my goodness. And it stayed there forever, like over two minutes, right? Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't one of these things where it just landed briefly and even stuck around for 10 seconds. To your point, maybe he had so much Aquanet on last night, Mike Pence, that his hair was like flypaper. The fly was trying to get away. (laughs) So funny. Just could not get out of Pence's uh, hair. 
All right. Meantime, a big announcement uh, earlier today here in this country by both the uh, federal and the provincial government when it comes to building electric cars in Ontario. Both the prime minister and the premier on hand earlier today. Let's have a listen. Both the federal and provincial governments are each pouring in over $250 million so the facility will move to mass-produce electric vehicles and their batteries. Premier Doug Ford says this is something to be proud of. With the combined contributions from Ford, Ottawa and the province, today's announcement represents the largest investment in Ontario's auto sector in over 15 years. This is a historic moment. The investment is part of a three-year, nearly $2 billion investment, which was revealed last month. Both governments are confident this will give Canada the edge to compete globally to meet what's expected to be increasing demand for electric vehicles in the very near future. Tina Trajani, Global News. All right, thank you, Tina. By the way, Tina is trying to confirm whether or not Doug Ford had a fly on his head when he made that announcement. Uh, here's uh, David Booth, senior writer for Post Media Driving. He joins us uh, for more on this announcement here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. David, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on. And nice to be back. I thought I saw a fly in Justin's beard, but, well, you know, that, that might have been just me. We could never tell in that quaff of his. There, there's no doubt if a fly, it could nest there for quite some time. Okay, <laughs> what is your uh, assessment of uh, today's announcement by both the federal and provincial government when it comes to electric cars? Well, I think that uh, the next five years are going to be pretty exciting. Um, the first thing uh, I'd tell you is that despite all the news that are hyping EVs, EVs in the States are actually in decline. Tesla is doing well, but the, act, the market, even uh, pre-COVID, was declining. 2019 saw fewer electric vehicles sold in the United States than in 2018. Now, we're building a plant here in, um, in um, Oakville, and it's going to produce 100,000 to 200,000 cars, five different electric vehicles. But, you know, we can't absorb anywhere near the, uh, that number of cars. So they have to go somewhere. And 90% of our, uh, of our exports are to the states. And if Trump gets reelected and uh, keeps his anti-EV uh, campaign up and also tries to withdraw California's waiver that allows them to promote uh, EVs heavily in their state and all the states that follow California, um, the, uh, the EV market in the states could decline even more than it has. And so exactly where all these cars are uh, will be going. Uh, Trudeau said that uh, we might ship them to the Europe and the Far East. Uh, we just don't have a history of doing that. Um, I mean, anything can happen. Uh, we should always be forward thinking, all that good stuff. But I just don't see that one happening. And Well, you know, my final question, sorry, David, for you is going to be, there's no doubt, I guess, that the future is electric and it's coming sooner than we all think if the government's making a half a billion dollar bet on this with your money in mind. But it uh, doesn't sound as if what you're saying, that the, that's a slam dunk. Well, I mean, how many times uh, have or how many times have you heard about the government making big investments in auto plants and that not was not working out? I mean, uh, in the, the the number of cases are rampant. You know, General Motors, uh, Ford, uh, stuff, and that's just in Ontario. The problems in the states just because. Um, a government's throwing $600 million at, 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 at one plant doesn't guarantee the success of that plant. They've got to sell those cars. And uh, what you've got to remember is EVs don't sell without subsidies. And while they're selling like hotcakes, 
in uh, Quebec and British Columbia where there are significant uh, incentives above uh, the federal $5,000 incentives. They're nowhere near um, uh, popular enough to say in Ontario without uh, without an Ontario incentive to to absorb anywhere near the number of cars this plant can make. So, okay, will that change? Do you think, though, uh, David, with time? Because uh, Ford, obviously, I mean, is not uh, Tesla, and I wouldn't think that they're looking to sell you know hundred thousand dollar plus uh, EV electric uh, cars. We know that they've come out with the. Uh, the electric Mustang uh, recently, aren't they going to try to uh, market an affordable uh, electric car? Well, I mean, uh, the, the Mach-E is bought in Canadian dollars. Uh, who knows? It's, I mean, nobody knows right now, but, you know, 50, 60, 70, it'll go to 80 for sure, I can guarantee you. Um, will they make smaller ones? Yes, but, uh, you know, EVs are still more expensive to make than um, than regular cars. You got to remember, Tesla has an advantage. When they claim uh, previously that they're going to make a twenty five thousand dollar car and they're selling cars um, uh, at thirty five and forty thousand, the Model Three, they're losing money on every car they build. I mean, Ford has to make money in Oakville to uh, um, um, uh, building these EVs uh, to, and and still yet compete against people like Tesla that can afford to lose money on every car. I mean, that's a huge disadvantage. So uh, incent- incentives are going to are, are going to be driving this. Uh, we, we've talked about a six hundred million dollar Ontario and uh, and federal um, combined uh, in, um, you know incentive to Ford, but the bigger monies are going to come from trying to incentivize consumers to um, to uh, buy a whole bunch of cars. So is that the other piece of this puzzle? Sorry to interrupt, David, but uh, the Ford government, of course, famously took away some subsidies for electric cars, thinking if you could afford a $100,000 Tesla, you didn't need a subsidy to uh, buy it. Is that going to come back? Is that the other piece of this puzzle? Well, two things on that. Uh, First, the uh, $5,000 incentive has already eaten up most of the funds that uh, um, the federal government set aside. So the first thing is, is they're going to have to re-up that number quite significantly if they just want to continue on the current path. As for Ford, you know, it's tough to say. On the one hand, he made a promise uh, to get rid of this kind of thing, and he did it. Uh, on the other hand, um, um, uh, the, the history is full of, um, of politicians that have reversed uh, campaign promises on the expediency of job growth and 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 higher taxes and economic spurts. Right. So, I mean, I, I, if he's smart, he's going to do it. He needs to. I mean, can you imagine putting two hundred ninety five million dollars into a plant and they can't sell any cars in your own uh, in your own province? That would seem pretty ridiculous to me. And obviously this investment is also guaranteeing jobs at the uh, plant in in Oakville and for Ontario. Uh, Do we know how many jobs and for how long? No, they haven't noticed uh, mentioned. I mean, there was the casual mention in the speech of 5,000 jobs. Uh, Of course, that's probably counting some of the suppliers. You know, the the, the ratio of uh, supplier jobs to uh, to assembly plant jobs is Anywhere between four and seven to one, it'll probably be in the lower end because electric vehicles have fewer components than um, uh, than gasoline-powered cars. So it's it's really hard to tell right now. I will say this: I figured out uh, how much subsidies would be required to sell 50,000 cars in Canada out of that plant, 
And when you add it all up, plus the investment they've already made, it works out to about $620,000 a job over five years. That's more than we're going to be paying those guys. Um, so, um, again, you, you know, the, there's more to this than meets the eye. And in every uh, one of these uh, plant announcements, uh, there's always more, as much psychological impact as there is financial. For sure. David Booth, senior writer with Post Media Driving. David, appreciate you breaking it down for us this afternoon and joining us. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Be well. Okay, the province reporting a record single-day high when it comes to COVID cases today. 797. We're just this shy, this close to 800. 797 is today's count. And this, of course, comes as there's increasing concern over mixed messaging when it comes to COVID from our leaders. Speaking of leaders, let's welcome in Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. He joins us here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Mr. Del Duca, nice to have you back on. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Okay, as I just mentioned, nearly 800 COVID cases in the province today. Just how concerned are you heading into the long Thanksgiving weekend? Oh, I'm, I'm gravely concerned. I, the numbers are scary. They're going in the wrong direction, and there continues to be um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of chaos and confusion out there. And uh, it still seems to me like Doug Ford has lost control of the situation. And that I think that should scare every single Ontarian right now. Well, the government has been criticized for not being clear when it comes particularly to Thanksgiving and COVID and also on some other COVID messaging. So in your opinion, is he responsible? How responsible is the government right now for the position that we currently find ourselves in in this province? Well, here's my take on it. You know, back in February and March, when when the, the virus first struck, every government, every level of government everywhere in North America was scrambling to respond because it was so unprecedented. And that was understandable. And that includes Doug Ford. Um, but we're now seven months into this crisis, and Doug Ford has known since the middle of July. In fact, I think he confirmed it publicly back then that there would be a second wave, and yet we still saw a plan for the reopening of schools that fell way short of what was needed. We've seen people lining up for hours for testing. Now tests are being sent to California because Ontario doesn't have apparently the homegrown capacity to deal with this because Doug Ford hasn't made the effort or made the investment necessary to make testing and contact tracing as robust as they needed to be. There's no excuse for this point uh, to be in this situation at this point. It's it's inconceivable to me that they're not better prepared for where we are right now in this province. And the messaging is still incoherent and confusing. It's just not good enough. Well, I mean, to be fair, though, the message has been, uh, you know, from day one, of course, uh, physical distancing, hand washing, face masks. And if people don't have that now, I mean, are they just confused or are they just being willfully ignorant? Uh, Of course, there's a a movement, an anti-mask movement out there as well. There are things that are out of the government's control, such as COVID fatigue. Well, COVID fatigue, I think, is a real thing, but here's what I mean by confusion. So, yes, from the very beginning, public health leaders, including Doug Ford, have said, you know, leaders as well as political leaders, as well as public health, have said, you know, six feet apart, wash your hands, wear the masks, all that good stuff. And then they reopen schools and don't have a requirement that kids stay adequately physically distanced. They open up casinos, they open up bars and strip clubs and so much more. Now we're being told we can't celebrate Thanksgiving except under the roof of people that we live with. And yet, you know, you could go into a casino and be around more people. The people, again, kids and educators and schools can congregate in larger numbers. All of these mixed messages, that's exactly what's leading to the confusion. And the reason there are mixed messages and the reason there's confusion 
is there is no coherent plan coming from Doug Ford. It's not good enough to stand at the podium and lecture the people of Ontario anymore. He's responsible. He can't pass the buck. He's got to make the hard decisions, show decisive leadership, and help get Ontario through the second wave. Joined by Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, Mr. Del Duca, if you were Premier today, what is the one thing you would do differently that would make an immediate difference? So, number one, I'd be very comfortable revealing the names of the women and men serving around the command table. I would publicly disclose what all of their recommendations are. I would take decisive action in Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa to move to what I call a modified stage two, making sure that we provide significant financial relief for the small business entrepreneurs like bar owners and restaurant owners who might be hit hard by that decision. I would take the federal pandemic relief money, the billions of dollars that Doug Ford is currently hoarding and refusing to spend, and I would actually deploy that so we had enough public health people out there dealing with contact tracing, enough testing in place, and make sure that the lines of communication were clear, consistent, and coherent. And that's what I'd be doing. When you say modified stage two, can you give us a little more detail on that? And I'll remind you, we're in the middle, of course, of Mental Health Awareness Week. And do we have to be uh, wary, Mr. Del Duca, when it comes to rolling back, uh, bringing back uh, restrictions and uh, closing businesses again and what that might do to people's uh, mental health? I mean, we've got to find some sort of balance. For sure. And mental health concerns, I'm actually right now in Guelph. I just met with some representatives from the Guelph Chamber of Commerce Mental health concerns are sort of top of the list of uh, what what they talked to me about today, and I'm hearing that everywhere. So so for sure, we have to keep an eye on that and make sure we have proper supports in place for those who are suffering. And I don't want to see a lockdown, Jeff. That's the most important thing to me. I think if Doug Ford took decisive action today, I don't want schools to close right now. I don't want to go, go into a general lockdown. Nobody wants that. But we know over the last number of days that in places in particular like Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa, that having larger groups of individuals congregate despite the best efforts of restaurant owners, bar owners, gym owners, that the numbers are still too high. Dr. Davila in Toronto has called for a modified stage two. There is no reason to wait. If we do that now, if Doug Ford would step up, show leadership and do that now, and also provide financial relief for those business owners so that they weren't put out of business, we would probably be able to stop a full lockdown. It's the old ounce of prevention being worth a pound of cure. It's, again, inconceivable to me that Doug Ford is missing an action and doesn't want to demonstrate this kind of leadership when it is sorely needed. Having said that, Mr. Del Duca, there was a report out this week that said Ontario finds itself in this position today when it comes to the pandemic and COVID because we failed to learn the lessons of SARS. And that, of course, happened on your party's watch. Liberals were in power, as we all know, for 15 years in this province. How much of where we are today is because of the Liberal uh, government and maybe a failure to pre- prepare, sorry. Yeah, so no, I, I listen, I understand that question, Jeff, and I'm not trying to make this partisan, but it, it, nothing that happened in SARS um, or what happened as a result or what came out of SARS in any way uh, tied Doug Ford's hands with respect to how he chose to reopen schools. Uh, the fact that he did not want to cap class sizes and keep them small, uh, the fact that he didn't want to have enough PPE ready for long-term care homes for both the residents and the people who work in those homes, the fact that we still see alarming stories coming out of the nursing home, long-term care home uh, sector. The fact of the matter is that there are close to $7 billion that the Financial Accountability Officer says Doug Ford has. Most of that money's come from the federal government. And what's he doing with it? He's hoarding it. He's sitting on that cash because he doesn't want to lift a finger, make the effort, or make the investment. So for sure, we should always draw lessons from past crises. 
but Doug Ford has been in the Premier's chair now for more than two years, and he's been he's been in charge of how Ontario has dealt with this pandemic. And, you know, earlier on when he was scrambling, it was understandable. But as I said earlier, we are now seven months in. He's had all kinds of experience dealing with this, and he's now got the money. He's actually got the federal pandemic relief money he could choose to be spending on the things that we need to spend it on, and he's just not prepared to. And that's, again, to me, that's unacceptable. Finally, Mr. Del Duca, there's a new survey out today that says that parents are concerned when it comes to uh, back to school, that they're feeling uh, overwhelmed, overtaxed. Uh, School boards, of course, have said that they're overwhelmed by the demand for online learning. Is it time to reconsider the back to school plan? Uh, Listen, the the back to school plan Doug Ford and his team put forward was just a complete mess and a complete disaster uh, and a real exercise on their part in passing the buck to everybody else under the sun school boards, parents, educators, the federal government. Apparently, during the the whole planning for back to school, the only person who didn't realize he was the actual premier of Ontario in that moment was Doug Ford. He's got a majority government. He's got the money at his disposal, most of it coming from the federal liberal government. And you have to know when you're a premier in our system that publicly funded education is one of your most profoundly important responsibilities. So it's never the wrong time to do the right thing, Jeff. He could step up and fix it now making the investments, hiring up new educators, making sure class sizes remain small, and giving parents a clear, consistent, and coherent message. Did your party do enough when in power, do you think, when it comes to education, and in particular online learning, to make sure that we were prepared for some of the challenges we're seeing right now? I think there's always room to build in more resilience for the publicly funded education system, but I know as one of the core values that Ontario Liberals hold dear, small class sizes, supporting educators, making sure kids have a safe space in which to learn. These are the things that matter to me. And I say that not just as a politician, but as a guy who's raising two daughters in elementary schools in Ontario with his wife. And that's what we want to see for our kids and for all of Ontario's kids. Mr. Del Duca, we'll leave it there for now. Really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks, Jeff. Happy Thanksgiving and stay safe. You as well. Happy Thanksgiving. Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. Well, breaking this afternoon, some significant news on the issue that we said that we would stay on, and that is long-term care. Ontario's patient ombudsman says that complaints about long-term care are up, how about this, 370%. Let me repeat that number. 370% for the period from March until the end of June. Now, the ombudsman has also announced recommendations to help LTC homes as COVID counts continue to rise. And all of this coming on what the industry is calling their day of action. And for more on that, we're joined now by Natalie Mariff with the Ontario Health Coalition. Natalie joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Natalie, thanks as always for your time. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. First of all, have you had a chance to see this ombudsman's uh, report? And uh, do you like what you see uh, when it comes to the recommendations? I haven't actually read the whole report yet. I just uh, heard the summary from the ombudsman, from the patient ombudsman. And, uh, you know, I think she really pointed out uh, many of the issues that we have been hearing about from thousands of staff and families over the, the last few months. I think what's really important is to note that things have not improved. I mean, in some homes we've seen some improvement, but across the board there is still really severe staffing shortages, inadequate care, really um, terrible response to what is a new wave of COVID-19 that has hit the homes. At this point, 51 uh, long-term care homes across the province are in outbreak. 
some of them getting quite large. 40 retirement homes are in outbreak. So we really are in an emergency now and we need real action now. Okay, let's dig a little deeper on this because, as I mentioned, the industry is holding a day of action today. So, Natalie, what is the message and who is it directed at? Well, the Health Coalition, we called a day of action because we have been waiting all summer for measures to get the care levels up in the homes. That that means staffing levels. In long-term care, there just is no care without staff. Uh, And some of the homes are just perilously short-staffed. In fact, many of the homes. We did a study, we did a survey in July, uh, and we found that 95% of the respondents reported that their homes were short-staffed every day or the majority of the time. Of those, um, you know, 65% said that uh, the staffing levels were worse than prior to COVID-19. What we know is that staff lost, that homes lost staff uh, during the first wave, people got sick or they had families um, with immune compromised states and they couldn't continue to work or they left. Uh, and so there's less resilience there now to face the second wave that is now upon us. And we were waiting all summer for the government to take action. Really nothing substantial has happened to improve the staffing in the homes. And now we're into the second wave and every day is a lost opportunity to to try and save some lives and make a difference here. The announced pay increase, that is one thing the government uh, has come forward with, the uh, pay increase for PSWs. Has that made a difference at all, or is it still too early to tell? Well, that pay increase, that's like a new kind of pandemic pay. The pandemic pay that they got during the first wave ended in August. It was $4 an hour bump up. It's now $3 an hour bump up, so it's less than it was in the summertime. Um, but it's also temporary. And the thing is that in uh, in April, the staff were told that the PSWs were told that they had to choose, um, actually it was all staff, one, one home to work in. So many of them have multiple part-time jobs and they had to give up, you know, one or two part-time jobs and work in only one home. We completely support that measure. But what it means is that some staff lost 20 hours a week of their work. And so a $3 an hour bump up doesn't, comes nowhere near to replacing that. So that, that to stabilize the workforce, we need measures like Quebec took four months ago. I mean, four months ago, the Quebec government went out. They put the full weight of government behind their recruitment plan. They recruited 10,000 PSWs. They trained them over the summer. They're getting them into the homes. Last week, they announced they're hiring a manager for each of their 400 homes, pairing them with an infection control person to ensure that the homes actually have competent management and follow the guidelines around infection control to stop the tide of the outbreaks in the homes. Ontario has done nothing like that. BC acted six months ago. So we we don't have that. I mean, we have staff um, who are working part-time who have seen uh, you know, have worked, you know, all kinds of hours at great sacrifice during um, the first wave, and they're tired, and they are stressed out. They talk about crying. They talk about losing it. The families talk about the terrible conditions in which they are finding their loved ones in homes that have outbreaks right now. I mean, this is October, the same sorts of things we heard in the military report months ago. So, uh, you know, we need action, and we need it post-haste. We need it immediately to um, to really stabilize and get enough care in the homes. 
Well, yeah, we, we talk uh, all the time, sorry to interrupt, but we talk all the time about uh, flattening, flattening the curve or planking the curve, but it really sounds, what you're describing, Natalie, as if the Ontario government has been behind the curve, if you will, when it uh, comes to taking appropriate measures to make sure that uh, recent history doesn't repeat itself in our long-term care homes. Yeah, I, we really are shocked that not nothing more has happened. They have responded. There is more money, but it's late. Uh, you know, the money for the summer, July and August, has not flowed yet to the homes. Um, and then, of course, the key issue, which is the care levels need to be safe. People need to be fed and hydrated. They need um, they need to not be alone all the time. They need care, basic care that can't be done without staff. And that hasn't been addressed. Uh, and the measures are kind of piecemeal. There's pockets of money here and there, but no big recruitment strategy, no coherent plan to get staff into the homes and get those care levels up to safety. Uh, and what is happening is is extremely late. Okay, here on this day of action, for those that are listening right now and are as concerned uh, as you and I are talking about this uh, right now, what is it you suggest uh, they do rather than just be concerned and hear our voices? I mean, contact their local MPP. Uh, what's your advice? Yeah, good point. Thank you. Um, definitely contact your local MPP, email um, Doug Ford, email the health minister, Christine Elliott, or the long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton. You know, they need to hear that Ontarians are not uh, are not happy with what's happening on that, that, that people are deeply concerned and they want to see more happen. Um, and, you know, they just need to stop dragging their feet on it. All right. Natalie Mara, Executive Director, Ontario Health Coalition. Natalie, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining thank us. You for, thank you for staying on this story. Our pleasure, and we will continue to. And that's the podcast. Thanks as always for downloading and listening. A reminder, you can listen live weekday afternoons from 1 to 3 at 640toronto.com. Find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcast.